Hi, I'm Chris Waddell. Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to our Name Tags Chat Podcast today. We are with Sarah Will. Sarah is a 13-time Paralympic medalist. 12 of them are gold. One is silver. She set the standard for women in mono skiing and actually beat the vast majority of the men. So ruined the career of a lot of men. She is a Hall of Famer with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, a Hall of Famer with the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Association. She is one of the most celebrated athletes. She started skiing as a little kid. She was one of five kids. What did, what did skiing mean to you? Like when you were growing up, Sarah? Every weekend I saw my older brothers and sisters get in the car and leave. And by the time I was four, uh, there was no more being at home. That's when my mom and dad, I was always on the ski trip. And that's when I started to ski with the uh, ski school. And then after that, it was free reign of the mountain with your brothers and sisters. And the, uh, the mountain became our babysitter. It really, back then, that's really the way it worked, wasn't it? They drop the kids off, go ski, we'll pick you up later. It's all good and you could, you could trust everything. Now, part of it though, you were, so you said ski trip. This was a weekend ski trip, right? So you were going from New York to Vermont. Is that what you were doing? Well, we were lucky enough to have a ski house at Pico Peak in Vermont. So we would take the four and a half hour drive with the so with whatever kids were left at home and the dog and whatever else we had with us. And uh, that's, I didn't really know much about high school extracurricular things on the weekends because I was always skiing and we were really happy about that. So what did this look like? There were five kids, right? Well, six, six in all, six in all and i was the youngest of six so i had four brothers well, i have four brothers and one sister and um my brother peter and lisa who were closest in age to me spent a lot of time on the ski trips together and um we just uh for me you either um got good you you had to get good because you had to keep up well you um, had to get good because you were the youngest yeah and the smallest and, and I, didn't know any, I didn't know any better, so you just kept up. <laughs> and what did keeping up mean? Were you just like, is that it? You just had to point them and just, just go as fast as you possibly could, or else they'd just leave you? Well, my brother Peter was a bit of a daredevil on skis, and, and my sister Lisa was more of a technical skier, and we were all involved in the ski, uh, in the ski club there. And... Um, Every time we, we were supposed to be training for slalom or giant slalom or anything, but really Peter and I were only interested in downhill. We really liked speed. We weren't good turners, and, but we could, um, it, we were the weekend warriors. So when all the other Vermonters were skiing every day and doing their schoolwork and having that opportunity to ski after school and train every day, for Peter and I, it was just the weekends, and we could bomb the hill from top to bottom. We could jump. We could go to the trees. It was so much fun, and um, 
that's where we where we did well. We did well in the speed events. We did not do well in the slalom events. And really, after the accident, nothing really changed. <laughs> oh, that's not exactly true. So, <laughs> so you went through the whole progression, and you skied in college though too, right? Prior to your to your injury. I skied in college for Green Mountain College. We were ranked 20th in the nation at the time. And that was, that was a big thing for a small school like that. Um, so we spent uh, most of our time training at Pico Peak, which was the mountain that I grew up on. So I was very comfortable there. So this is how you chose your college? I did, my, my child college chose me. <laughs> Unfortunately, Green Mountain College is no longer in existence, but it was a heck of a good time. So, so you did that, and then, and then you moved out to Aspen, right? Is that, did you move right out after college? Is that how it worked? Or? Uh, I was, uh, after college, I did a little work uh, with my dad to, in New York City for a little while down at the ex ex on the floor of the exchange, which I had no business being in. <laughs> Um, just as a summer job. And then after that, I moved out to Colorado after working with my brother as a carpenter. So I, when I arrived in Colorado and Aspen, I found the biggest, nicest house I could find with a roof on it and indoor plumbing and decided that's where I was going to work and do my carpentry for the, la for the next, however long it took to build that house. However long, so you just you just hired yourself. You just you just went to them and said, "Hey, I need to work on this." Or what do you what what do you? No, mean? I, I I drove out and I I I looked around the construction sites to look at the biggest and uh, the the grandest house. These mansions are incredible, and you could spend months just putting on doorknobs, but it's all inside. And if you arrive in September, you don't want to be digging ditches or doing anything outside. <laughs> so this was job security. But you were there, you found the biggest house, and it's like, okay, we're going to be here for a good long while, so I will continue to have a job. Yes. I assume you went to Aspen to ski as well. It wasn't just a carpentry, and, and to back up just a little bit, you were an art major in college, weren't you? I was an art major. Um, I was a fine artist, and at the time, there was such a big boom in computer graphics. And I was really intimidated by the word computer in itself. Uh, so painting for me was, uh, it, it helped me relax. But then when I got to college and there were deadlines and there were um, courses that you had to perform in, it, it wasn't the same anymore. It was, I, I was rushing my work and didn't really enjoy it. Plus there was a lot of pressure to, that word starving artist uh, was very scary. <laughs> so you better find something besides art was kind of the message that was being given. Um, so after all this time, finding art again uh, with a different attitude and not being intimidating and just go with what, what's inside of me is so much better and not to be worried about who's judging it because art is non-judgmental well let's let's get to that in a little bit we'll get to the we'll get because you've you've reconnected with your art and it sounds like it's a great message for 
so many people just going through all the isolation and all the change and everything that we have encountered with COVID. But the skiing thing, you you were you you so you didn't want to be a starting artist. So you picked up a hammer and you picked up your skis basically. And and that's actually Sarah and I the funny thing is we we had very similar careers and had our accidents five days apart in 1988. So yours was the 15th of December of 88. Mine was the 20th of December in Massachusetts. So 2000 miles effectively apart, but five days apart, which was, which was interesting that we ended up with a pretty parallel career. And, and so, so you had an accident on the mountain, a skiing accident, both of us had skiing accidents. And then you started skiing again that next year, right? That next winter. I did. I, I was actually in the hospital when my brother came to visit me and he said, uh, I don't know if it's okay to talk to you about this or not, but my brother Brian was scheduled to go on a ski trip to Winter Park in Colorado. So while I said, yeah, of course, please, please go. And skiing is still in my heart. It's just not something that I can really do. Um, enjoy. So he went on this ski trip and he saw the adaptive skiers there with Hallow, with the Hallow Leary adaptive program and um, brought back Hallow Leary's Bold Tracks book back to me. Now I'm still in the hospital and I, I get this book and it has all types of different adaptive skiing, blind, uh, uh, amputee, mono skis and the mono ski, the it was all little drawings and there were great little illustrations, <clears throat> but I couldn't quite see it for what it was at the time. Uh, it was also super new then, right? This is, this is 89 where mono skiing really kind of started in the mid eighties and, and it was becoming more mainstream where there were manufacturers and stuff like that. So you could actually go and buy it and you didn't have to build your own based on what somebody else was doing. But what did you think about it? What did you, when you looked at this and you're like, okay, do I want to ski? Do I not want to ski? What was your, what was your thought? I wanted to ski, but I, I hadn't even wrapped my head around my disability or the world uh, of disabled sports or volunteerism. These, so many people are so wonderful in volunteering their time and um, getting involved. That doesn't always remember that always mean that everybody's gonna be 100% uh, trained on what it is we need to do. They've volunteered their time and they're learning as they go the same as we are, although they've, they know a lot more than I do. Um, so it, it was really hard for me to check the ego. In my brain, I knew how to ski but in my body, I couldn't quite do it. So when my brother came back from this trip, um, it inspired me to go out there. And then the next season I did go out there with a, a friend and a, a couple friends and my family. Uh, and it wasn't smooth by any means. Um, I think the, by, the, by the third day of getting slammed to the ground like a fly slaughter, uh, I, I really kind of broke and I was crying and I could hear my family in the other room 
questioning themselves whether it was a good idea to bring me out to Colorado. Um, and I said, you know, don't worry about it. It, it. it is a good idea. It's just I was really frustrated with falling. So I actually just asked for a couple of different um, folks to ski with me who, who just treated a ski as a ski versus a disability down to a ski. And that way I could, I could visualize it better than trying to work around my disability versus working around my ski. You're trying to achieve the same thing. When you were lying there in the hospital bed and Brian brought back this, this book, you know, I mean, there was, there was a part of it, right, that, that you're still trying to figure out who you are, what you are. Is this wheelchair thing permanent? Am I, you know, what, what's my life going to be? And could you envision that you could, that you could actually ski the way that you had skied before? Did you envision that it'd be the same sport? Interestingly enough, when I started, the week that I started, the world championships were happening at Winter Park. Uh, so I was feeling quite um, inept. And then as I, my, my, my instructor was pushing me through the line and I was barely balancing just as I was ready to get on the lift, there was another line there for the racers, um, a cut line. And I saw these two athletes come, come skiing down. They had to be going 70 miles an hour, just laying down an arc that the sun could just glisten off of. Um, and one of these athletes was blind. Both tracks were perfect. Um, and then they would signal to each other and they got in line and got on. And then two other folks came behind them. One guy came down in a mono ski and just flipped, just crashed so hard, flipped. And I just this thought, This is oh, the actual race. No, this, they're just free skiing. They were, they were just kind of warming up for the race and training there for the week. And uh, all of a sudden, he, you know, he crashed, he got up. The other guy gave him his outrigger. I mean, he went big. And as they came through the cut line and got on the chairlift, I just saw the, the backs of their jacket and it said USA and Australia. And off they went. And it was like, I knew right away I could get good at this because I already knew how to ski. Uh, <laughs> well, that's a huge advantage, right? If you already know how to ski. So it was huge to see that, to, uh, to see what it might be. Yeah. Yeah. To, to just at that point going, this is going to take some time. And as soon as I got back from that trip, I was working at the, uh, the hospital where I did my rehab, the Burke Rehabilitation Center. So I was working, I think, three days a week. And then, then the other two days, I actually borrowed a mono ski from an ad adaptive program that their mountain didn't have any snow. So I borrowed their ski and I took it to Hunter Mountain in New York and just went there on my own and um, asked the just ski. Just on yeah, I had my dad put the, the ski in my car, which he was very nervous about. And I said, you know, after I learned how to ski a little bit, I could ski fine. I just wasn't so great at getting on the lift yet. Um, if I fell, I could always get somebody else to pick me up. But 
I said, if the ski patrol is just doing their thing and going around, can I ski with them? And that way, when they got to the bottom of the lift, I would just jump on with them and feel safe. So you went all by yourself. You went you went to Hunter with a borrowed ski, borrowed mono ski, and probably got somebody to to grab the mono ski out of your car once you got there. But this is the way that it started is is that you just went there and just basically taught yourself how to ski. Well, I started at a Scutney Mountain, and it was a, a wonderful program, and they had a little race program that. Uh, people were just starting to get involved in. They had a number of mono skis. And I was in Colorado, I was tethered. But when I came to this adaptive program, they weren't tethering people. And there was no real beginner, beginner hill. It was just straight down icy. And so I could get across the hill, but making that turn to get back across the other way was so daunting. Um, and the volunteer there was from England and his name was Guy. And he said, well, don't worry if the ski starts to take off and you get out of control, I'll just tackle you into the hill. It sounds kind of crazy, but he was so good at this. He was such a master. As soon as I would take off, he would come down, ski underneath me on the downhill side, grab my ski and slowly kind of push me into the hill to get me if I was, if I needed to just go down, having him put me down, right, right, okay. having him, having him push me down into the hill was a lot better than having me fall down the hill and catch that snowboarder door hinge slam. So, okay, so this is so this is the way it worked. When did you, when did you feel like you got good, or or did you start racing, or how, when did this happen? How did it all happen? <laughs> I, well, I took that ski and I showed up at the, um, the, after the, after my first season, no, I guess it was the same season. I, uh, I found out that the U S nationals were happening in Stratton. Right. So I went to Stratton just to see what was going on. And they did have, um, even though we didn't qualify, they had like a beginner type race that we could do. Hold on, don't say we. I qualified for it. I was there. <laughs> Even though you didn't qualify. Okay, you qualified. I did not. So I just I just did some gates after the course was done. And I remember seeing you and I was like, how how's it with he started kind of the same time we did? How did he make the team? I didn't make the team. I there, there was no I didn't make the team, but I had made the nationals. I qualified, I did a couple of races and that that at that time was really hard too because there were only so many regional races to qualify for nationals and I remember doing I did my first race like 10 days after I started skiing or something like that started skiing in a mono ski just because it was the only one around right that's exactly the way I did it there was a race up in New York and you just chased these little races trying to qualify, but some of them were so far away, like New Hampshire or Maine. Well, I mean, even worse, I mean, remember you could go, you know, you're kind of in New England and then it's like, oh, well, the next race is in Ohio. And it's like, I don't want to go to Ohio to have to, to have to race or go down to West Virginia or something, or, you know, you're like, wow, this could be, 
just to just to get started and really those races I went to and probably similar for you were like NASTAR races they weren't like a really full-blown race but so so you so that was that was that year and then and so that was 1990. 90 and then in 91 I really just started to chase the races do whatever I could do and um I'll never forget getting that phone call from Stefan Hench, the head coach of the U.S. disabled ski team. Um, and at the time, I it was um, I had qualified for U.S. nationals, and I went to uh, Oregon, Mount Hood, for, for nationals. Mount Hood Meadows. Um, Mount Hood Meadows, and it was a big hill. I had not done downhill or super g and in college they didn't have super g so when we did the super g race i did not realize that it was two runs i mean that it was one run one run yeah so in my mind i was like okay i'll just you know i'll stay safe and you know kind of just stay in a safe zone on my first run and they're like congratulations congratulations like for what they're like oh you got third place I thought, oh, I didn't want to tell him I didn't know it was only one run. <laughs> and my father didn't want me to do downhill at all because it snowed so much that every time you came down the big last last pitch of the run, it wasn't exactly groomed out at the bottom. And people were catching edges and just star fishing across the finish line. And the blind skiers couldn't see where the deep snow was. And it was just horrifying for spectators. That was, well, actually, the scariest part was really an inspection, right? Because there was that last, there was that final pitch. And there was so much snow that, that they, they made everybody just straight run this final pitch, which was faster than I wanted to go at that point, maybe for you as well. I remember hanging out on the top of that pitch going, okay, all right, all right. And, uh, and one of the guys that I'd raced against in, in New Hampshire went and did exactly that and just, just cartwheeled and cartwheeled and cartwheeled, you know, tried to stop in the, in the finish. And I said, okay, well, this is what I'm doing. Cause I, because I have to get off the off the trail. Like I, I can't just stay here. They can't run the race if I'm just if I'm still here. So I ran and and I said, don't try to stop. Like just try to make it through the finish corral and keep going. And you know, there was a little, it was a little sketchy, that's for sure. But uh, but yeah, that was that was a fun time. So that's when you made the team was that was that summer. So that was that was 91. And so then they named well, ninety-two was 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 Alberville. So you, yeah. so you made the team, and then then you decided to go back out to Winter Park, right? Yes. And live full time in Winter Park. So you made this, you made this a career. Like you left your hammer, you left your your paintbrush, and this was it. You were a ski racer. My brother William and I jumped in the car and drove all the way out here. Um, didn't know where the house was, didn't know who I was living with. I was living with uh, Matt Feeney. Yeah. And uh, so that was our first meeting was just coming out there and he was with the 
adaptive program or he was learning how to ski race and um, then his career kind of then took off into another direction with adaptive adventures, which is amazing. Um, so when I came out, it was just train, train, train all day, every day with the winter park um, uh, adaptive program there. Well, that was the biggest program really in the world, the ski program at that point, right? Yes. Both, both learn to ski and, and learn to race. And so you were with that race program with, with Danny Puffoff as your coach and Paul DeBello running the whole program who were, who were trailblazers in a lot of ways. I mean, particularly DeBello, where he was the first, DeBello was the first guy, first double amputee. So he's a bilateral amputee who skied with his prosthetics in his ski boots. Yes. Prior to that, they had put their, pro their, their stump in their ski boots. And I mean, there's all sorts of crazy things. So they, they called him the giant yeah. because he was everybody. When, when you see somebody break their leg off and not realize that it's a prosthetic in a boot, it's quite shocking from the lift. It, it is. I remember at Canadian Nationals seeing some guy hook a tip and the, the ski, the boot, and the leg all went went one way and he went the other way and you know if you're just watching this you're like you're going to be sick you're like oh I feel I feel really pretty nauseated right now this is this is awful so so you got good though when you went to Winter Park did it happen did it happen really quickly what was it like at the start of the program when you moved out there I think that it was prior to that in on the east coast when I it, the East Coast skiing is different. It, it can be harder. It can be icy. It can it can be very loud. Um, <laughs> and I remember a couple times just really getting the ski, feeling the ski, and really getting the ski out away from me, so that I was floating. My body was going one way, my skis were going the other, and I could feel the ski totally load up and bend and take off. And it was. It was like that. I, I knew this is skiing. This is a ski. And I could also tell that the skis that I had my accident on were incredibly, were, were way too stiff. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was interesting to know, to feel that prior to your accident and then be on a mono ski and feel that bend in a ski and say to yourself, that's a nice ski. Like, there's no way I thought I could ever bend a ski again. Was that a relief once, once that happened, once you got that ski out away from you and engaged the ski and bent the ski and, and actually skied? You weren't doing these windshield wiper kind of direction changes. What did that feel like when you, when you finally, when you realized, wow, I can still do this? That was it. When you felt that I can do this, and I also immediately recognized, it almost felt uh, it felt exactly the same as skiing on two. If you did it right, if you did it wrong, and you slid your tail and you slid too far, and you felt like you were going to catch that edge and just just really have a bad one. Mm -hmm. um, I was very conscious of that. So avoiding that, uh, avoiding that, 
But yeah. once I felt how to do it right, it felt stable, it felt safer. And I also recognized from other skiers, other adaptive skiers, whether they be an amputee or a mono ski, um, I could see exactly what there was happening with their skis, that a lot of them were over rotating because they didn't have the leg or they didn't have the arm on that side and the ski was sliding. And you could pick out every little thing um, from each skier and it was really nice to have coaches that recognize they didn't know adaptive athletes. They knew skiing. And that's the way I felt because um, they would be able to look at my skiing and say, okay, just on the inside of this turn, just raise your shoulder up a little bit and that'll keep your ski from sliding out. And it's the same things that they would have told me if I were standing up. They weren't, saying okay use your paralysis to do this or that or you know you know they were just it would they were very similar terms and it felt the same it felt the same and the sports the sport uh, seemed the same as well so you introduced yourself to the world in alberville right in 1992 mm -hmm. what did you what did you do there what what kind of results did you get Oh, man, I think that, that I can still remember those days and how hard I trained and um, I didn't have a hand cycle. Um, I think I joined a local gym, but I would just push my wheelchair up this giant hill every day trying to build my muscles up. Um, and I was working with a certified rolfer uh, by the name of Matt Spencer, who helped me really be in tune with my body and my muscles because mentally just the first couple of years of paralysis is difficult to even know how to deal with life. Um, but I didn't really, I didn't see any most of that because I was so concentrated on the skiing thing at this point. Mm -hmm. that, um, going to Alberville, I was so excited about it. Um, but unfortunately, two days before I was supposed to go, I was coming back from a training course and a spring breaker footballer kid in his football uniform came flying down the hill and the back seat, ball, poles, poles flying. And he went through me like I was a paperclip. And I always thought if somebody hit me in the mono ski, they would really be hurt. Um, but 35 pounds of metal. Yeah. No, it was like, I weighed nothing. The ski weighed nothing. Both outriggers were broken in half. They were metal. Um, and then I, tr I tried to put my arm down and I realized, oh my God, I have no shoulder. And I sustained a, a, a second degree shoulder separation. So I was trying not to, um, let anybody know. So I went home, um, one friend had gotten me home and from the hospital, but while I was in the hospital trying to be quiet about the whole thing, the nurse came in and said, oh, you're Sarah Will, you, my, my husband, Stefan Hench, the, the head coach. So no, I didn't get away with anything. Um, so they just tried to keep, you know, bring me my meals to just check up on me and they, from, then on, they had to push me to the airport, push me from the car, push me 
to the hill, push me to my mono ski. Once I got on the mono ski, push me to the lift. And then once I was skiing, as long as I wasn't turning too much, um, the adrenaline would kick in and it's, that's all I had. I had, I, that downhill day was everything that I worked for. Um, so the adrenaline was so high when I got into that start gate that I don't even know if there was any pain. Um, but I went down and it was a, an amazing run. It was nerve wracking because my teammate had crashed in front of me and the course holds and crashed. I mean, she really crashed. This is Shannon Blodell who, who went upside down. And, and I remember somebody saying to me at one point when, when Josh Duick did his backflip and they said, have you seen this is the first wheelchair back or first monoski backflip? And I said, no, that's the first intentional monoski backflip because Shannon went and just caught and flipped and catapulted in the air and to that, in that nasty section where you came through and there was that transition that was just all bumpy before before the final shush if you want to call it right to the uh, right to the finish the steep pitch going down into the finish and so mentally what's going through your mind then I mean you're you're you've hurt your shoulder Shannon's gone down. I don't know if they airlifted her or not. I don't remember that. It, it was a, a very long hold and we were so concerned. And I knew that portion of the course was getting a hold of because back in those days, the mono skis really just had a, a, a compression, not so much a rebound adjustment. So it would just bounce and you'd have to that ski, bounce, bounce, settle, turn. So it wasn't as a smooth thought process. Um, so when she went down, uh, they radioed up say, and I said, you know, is there, they said, there's no way around it. You have to go through it. Keep your line, keep your line. And that's a really hard thing to contemplate when you know somebody just did a double flip in front of you and is hospitalized and she's tough as nails. So but you trusted the coaches though too. I trusted the coaches with my life and that's why you stayed. And when you went through it, that was your thought. They told me to go here, stay the course, stay the course. Um, and then coming down the final pitch, it was incredible because it, you're in France. The mountains are in, are so brilliant and white and blue background with the with the sky. It had just snowed for days, and everything was glistening and sparkling. And the and the uh, the torch was lit at the bottom of the course. So cauldron, yeah. Yeah. The cauldron was lit. My father was down there. He couldn't be more excited. And uh, they, the best thing about that race is they, they had the timing of how fast you went. It was six, 62 miles an hour was clocked. So you can, you can see it. You can feel it. And when, you, when you're going that fast, you're trying to, your, your grip gets so tight and in your mind you're saying stay loose. Because 62 in a monoski feels like 
122. It really does. It really, it feels really fast. Is that, so you've won 13 medals. Is that the race that sticks in your mind? Is that, is that your favorite of your, of your races? Or is there something else that sticks out as like that, that was the race. That was what I was trying to do. It is. I, I think that I was so focused and so clear and the, 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 the rolfing work that I was doing really helped my body that I couldn't have felt stronger or more um, limber as well. Because a lot of athletes have a very difficult time with staying limber and trying to stay strong at the same time. Um, but that, that race was, was everything you thought it was going to be when you put your arms through that U.S. team jacket for the first time. The feeling of representing your country with the USA ski team logo, the ski team logo, which was the same logo as you saw on your superstar um, ski racers when you were a kid. And to actually be in the same uniform as your Alpine counterpart was incredible. You were on the same team, which, was really hard for me to wrap my head around. Um, especially when you would see big Tommy Moe and AJ Kit and all these guys. And um, the fact that they were on the, the, these downhill courses, not even a week ago, winning a gold medal. Now you're skiing on that course. Right. You have a lot to live up to. So you really want to make your, team proud yourself proud but also the ones that came before you in the olympics yeah carry it on so so that's so that's your pinnacle in a lot of ways because then you you went in salt lake and won all four all four races in salt lake which was the which you had been indisputably the the number one woman for a lot of years but had never been able to get to the finish line all four times in the Paralympics. Did it, did, what, what, what was that like? What was being in Salt Lake? Did, was that a goal for you to just say, I need to, I want to win all four races? Yes. I, I so wanted to win all four races every time I raced and it just, the ridiculousness of some of the things that happens, uh, that, the nervousness in a race. I, I remember being in a, in a race in Lillehammer and I was so geared up to get that. I think it was the GS that I hadn't won. And um, when I went out of the start gate, I had my hands so ripped around the outriggers that I forgot there's a little string right on the outriggers that your hands should be on when you fire out of the gate. They should not be mm-hmm. here. And when I went like this, my hands were not on the strings and my outriggers did not come down to enable me to ski. And I had nothing and I didn't even make it to the first gate. Really? You went out before the first gate? Really? I didn't remember that. Yes. Um, So it was was almost so ridiculous that you're like, I can't be crazy upset about this in the moment because it's so ridiculous that only I know what happened. Nobody's going to understand that I made such a massive mistake at the biggest race of my life. Um, 
that you almost chuckle to yourself like that was ridiculous. So I just got up and I continued the course. And I think on the second run, um, I tried to go so fast, I ended up breaking my ski in half and hitting something that it didn't matter. So I forgot what your question was. I got sidetracked. <laughs> no, no, that's all, that's all well and good. How about looking back on, so, so leaving Alberville, we went to Canadian Nationals after Alberville. And in the slalom at Canadian Nationals, the first run, you actually beat Jim Martinson, didn't you, in the in the first run of the slalom there? Well, it, that, that this is a tough one because um, at the time I had beaten every male on the circuit except for David Kiley and Jim Martinson, and David Kiley was not there. He was a bas at a basketball match. And Martin, everybody was, all the guys were joking to Martinson, like, you're next, you're next. She got us all, you're next. And he jokingly said, um, the day you beat me, I will buy you a new Corvette. And everybody heard it. And I was like, ha, ha, ha. Well, I did beat him on one run, and that was enough. And everybody got on his case and it was, I thought that I would feel all glorious and ooh, yay. No, it didn't work out that way. He had his son with him and he just got, got beaten by the smallest girl on the whole circuit. And I couldn't even hold my head high. I was just in shame <laughs> when I would see him in the hall. <laughs> you were in shame. Did you ever get your Corvette? I did not get the keys to my Corvette. No, I did not. <laughs> but I did what I wanted to do, I suppose. Exactly. Well, you were there to be the fastest, the fastest in the world, you know, whether you were five one ninety pounds, which might have been might have been for the sake of the roster kind of thing that you were saying. You you might have exaggerated that you were 90 pounds. You might not have been 90 pounds. So now you're going back to a bit of the art. You said that you've been you've been painting more and more. And we yes. posted some of your some of your paintings, some of the stuff that's in in work. What do you do, do you have an idea of what you're trying to do when you go into a painting? Are you just communing with the painting and letting it go wherever it wants to go or how does it how does it work? I did a a, a still life. I've been doing still lives for the uh, corona the coronavirus time here. And to try to not be, so, don't get complicated on things, just do something. And I have a box full of frames in the garage, some that I got at garage sales for a dollar or some that are repurposed. And the goal was because I wasn't painting and getting my head wrapped around what I should paint or how I should paint or who they should be for, to pick something and fill a frame. Don't start with the painting. Just pick a frame and fill it. And then so work frame with and, a, and a canvas. Like these frames are coming with canvases. Is that how it works? No, these, these frames are by their, they're empty frames that I got at a garage sale. Okay. So take a piece of paper, take a canvas, take a t-shirt, paint it white. If you didn't have any canvases, go simple. Um, we don't need to spend $30 on a canvas that we could make ourselves for nothing. Uh, use wood, use 
use unconventional items around the house that you have. Like for instance, now, um, just last night, I did a painting and then I realized, huh, if I made that a, a multimedia painting, it would be interesting. Um, and I actually have it right here. I'll show you the, the painting was, um, I asked my friend to give me a, a bobbin, a, a sewing bobbin, because okay. when I go to her house, her kitchen is filled with sewing materials because she's making masks and she's been making masks for months and they're beautiful and they're just, they're so well thought out. So I stole a bobbin from her and I did a bobbin painting. I don't know if you can see it. Oh, very cool. All right. Yeah. Awesome. So what I'm going to do is take a little piece of, of string and make it come out of the painting. So this is your multimedia. Okay. That's my, you know, if it's one piece of string, it's multimedia. Um, yeah. So to, to, to simplify things and don't, don't overdo it. Like the whole idea was to fill, to fill this frame. This was in the garage for 10 years. Why not put something in it? So, and so what are you doing with these, with, with the final, the final product? Are you, are you hanging them in your house? Are you selling them to people? Are you giving them to people? Are well, they all kind of started out um, like the ski team event that I do, we've gone to for, what is it, 30 years now? 25, 30 years? Oh, something like that, yeah. Um, I started off doing an auction item for them. And I, and I started doing trees, black and white trees. And the reason why I did the black and white originally was because when I was ski racing, I realized that I was so wrapped up in the ski racing and the winning and and team politics and all of that that I completely was not seeing where I was in the world. Beautiful places in Austria and France and um, Austria, just so many places. And I realized I've got my blinders on. So why not um, why not bring some paints and try to try to paint what's around me or at least get my head out of my yeah get that out and um and see what's around you so uh i didn't want to bring the whole set of paint so i just brought a tube of black and white so that everything came out as a black and white painting now because you're carrying enough heavy stuff as it is with a mono ski and a you know 10 pairs of skis or whatever it was at that point yeah. you know and yeah, just it took like a full day to get your car loaded just to go to the airport to go to Europe or something. So what's the what's what's this do for you? What is what is painting doing for you now? Why why reconnecting with painting? What how is it changing your outlook? Uh over the last oh, I'd say like ten years ago, uh I went through a very difficult time. Um, lost my father, a number of just, just life things. And I didn't realize that I, I had such high anxiety about some of the situations that I was in that uh, I, I was having panic attacks and I didn't know what they were. Um, my appetite would be so affected that I wasn't able to eat. And then it, um, caused me to lose so much weight that I was hospitalized. 
And I did not realize that being an athlete all my life, that something that could hurt my stomach so bad and give me so much pain in my gut could be completely in my head, could be completely a mental issue. And when I was hospitalized for the third time and I spoke to this nurse at three o'clock in the morning and she asked me, so what's going on in your home life? Um, and I started to talk to her about it and the pain went away immediately after talking to her for 20 minutes and all anything that they would have given me or tried to give me wouldn't have helped. And that's when I realized um, I need, I need therapy. I need mental therapy. So um, learning how to deal with mental therapy and um, rather than just going there and spewing out your life to, to actually interview them. What are their interests? What are my interests? Um, do we connect on, on certain issues before opening up? But during that time, I found that painting calmed me because I couldn't think about something else. Uh, whether it was pain, like if I have pain from just being in a wheelchair all day in your back, if I paint, get myself in a comfortable position, still hurts. Uh, then I didn't think about it at all. And it didn't influence my day in such a, a negative reminder that, yes, um, I am a paraplegic. And yes, it's going to be something to deal with. But there are ways to help that, whether that be painting or yoga. And so the the, the painting thing now is uh, I care less, which is helping them more. <laughs> which is which is so funny because you said that when you first started mono skiing, that you you got your father to put your ski in the car, put your mono ski in the car. You drove to Hunter, got somebody to help you out, went and skied, and knew that somebody would come and pick you up. Which for a lot of people that sounds like a really hard ordeal but then you're talking about after and then after having been the best in the world at what you did that having to to seize the to seize the power to to seize your own power to to create your own direction that that sounds like that was far more challenging for you and and was it an incremental process or how did how did you come to this? I mean, you had that moment with the nurse in the hospital, but see, seizing that control and, and being responsible for your health, how did you, how did you make that happen? I, I didn't realize that gaining control of my mental health was going to be as difficult as it was. Um, and the reality was you have to do some work. You, you, you have to change your habits. And um, if that means um, cutting off relationships with people that are not doing you positive, uh, then you do that. Then you, um, yeah. I, I've always been okay with taking a couple steps forward and taking three steps back to get back into my comfort zone. Don't go um, like I didn't feel like I needed to be employed while I was going through a difficult time. That's what 
social security is there for that's that's what disability is there for that um for you to get well to you for you to to get the help that you need um and move forward and not be embarrassed by it because i'm i was world champion um it, it none of those titles really mean anything um when you just have to to do the work of living and and move forward i i i didn't have a problem with not looking back on my skiing career uh but i think there was a lot of influence from other people why don't you for me to to stay in the business of me, being in the media or being uh skiing or being in some kind of a leadership role and um i don't always want to do that and that's okay it's okay to have down it's okay to, to take as much time as you need to recover to move on with some kind of a goal in mind and track what what helps you um and give yourself a break every once in a while you know you don't have to be on top of the world it's uh just just making your breakfast is good enough but that can be a challenge can it i mean having been on top of the world and and sort of did you expect that from yourself in whatever else you were going to do or is it something that you felt pressure from other people to, hey, Sarah, you did this. You were so great at that. I can only imagine what you're going to do next. Was it from you or was it from them or was it a combination of the two or how did it work? I think after Salt Lake, um, I was fortunate enough to win four gold medals and be happy with that. But it was incredibly hard. I had a very difficult time going into those races. Um, I had lost a nephew, Timothy, um, in a snowboarding accident in Vermont the, same, the, the year before the, the games. Mm -hmm. So going fast on snow and losing a couple friends to ski accidents was not motivating to go sp for speed. Um, and knowing that I was having those difficulties, I made sure that I posted the, the course on my mirror and my kitchen, on my refrigerator. It was posted everywhere. So I put so much into it. And I really, honestly, at that point, I needed it to be over. I needed to, to move on, to stop skiing and not being so tired all the time. And traveling, uh, I never, I've never traveled well. I, I was always the kid that got car suck sick at Lake Champlain halfway on the ride to Vermont. Um, so being in a team van didn't help me. So I just, I was ready for it to, to be over. And um, a good thing that the, the U.S. Olympic Committee did for us was they, they clued us in on the fact that sometimes the more successful an athlete is, the harder it is for them to uh, stop and retire and and not have the same kind of passion or goal in any other area of their life besides with just their sport. So I was semi-prepared for that. I 
I worked hard. I knew it. So when I retired, I told, I said to myself, I don't want to do anything so that I was prepared when people say, what are you doing now? Nothing. I'm doing nothing. And that was a really safe response as, as, as long as I wrapped my head around it first. There was no way that anybody could infiltrate me with those types of pressures of what you should do now. Do you, do you have that same kind of passion now that you had for your sport? Do you want to have that same kind of passion for something else? Or how does, how does that work? Cause I mean, I, I, I mean, for me, retiring was the hardest thing that I've, that I've done. I mean, it just in terms of identity, it was much more difficult to retire because I became, I became the guy in the wheelchair, which I hadn't really become after I left the hospital, after I'd become the guy in the wheelchair. Right. And, 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 and I think that, that some of it was that you put so much of, of yourself into what you're what you're doing, you put it into the sport, you put it into, because it became more than that, right? I mean, it was, it was not just the competing, it was, it was transforming a situation. It was, it was transforming a mindset, both, both yours and somebody else's, right? And, and everybody else's, right? And trying to, trying to say, can I use this sport as a vehicle to create some change? And, and, and so then, then sometimes it feels like, you know, you, you put all of you, put your full self into it and, and it's easy to feel like you're not getting back what you thought you might get or, or what you think you might deserve that it's like, you know, that it's like, oh, well you go and you compete in your sport and then there's the happily ever after part. And it's like, no, you finish. And it's like, okay, now you start again. And you're like, oh really? So do you want to, you know, do you, do you feel passionate the way that you did for your sport? And do you, and do you want to, if you don't? I, I, it, there's a new passion and it, and it feels, it feels like being in the downhill start for the first time again. And uh, that is advocacy. Uh, after I retired, I, it, it's, it's one thing when the whole town is looking at you like, oh, there's our Paralympian and um, our happy little ski racer. Uh, but when there were major accessibility issues that were occurring on a billion dollar renovation that was going to happen in Vail, I had to ask myself, how much work and time do you want to spend on this to try to educate a, an entire town? on how to build accessibility into this new renovation. Um, and in my mind, knowing that they're like, oh, there's your happy little ski racer. Let's just listen to her and hope that she goes away. Well, uh, I didn't realize how hard it was gonna be to keep going back, to keep, to keep educating, to, um, if the cobblestones weren't, weren't working, that they were gonna be laying down, then align yourself with the delivery truck drivers who hate them just as much. And make, 
and you make it about the delivery truck drivers uh, spending more time because they have to keep fixing their their packages on the cobblestones, which costs more money. So you make things about money and not about let's do it for the good of the 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 cause. Yeah, then people start to listen, and when they don't, oh, when when it gets taken to a whole new level where they yesed you to death and and hoped you gave you know you you worked so hard, then then it's time to petition. Then it's time to stand up and really admire and um, respect the people that came before us, like Justin Dart and um, Ginsburg, all these folks that, that laid down the curb cut for me so I didn't get stuck in the street. And we're talking about modern day society still not wrapping their heads around what's accessible and the more accessible you make it, the longer people stay, the more money you make. It seems like such a simple thing. Um, so, so me kind of me making that transition from ski racer to professional advocate to, um, consulting on, on issues that there are gonna be people on your side and people who are not on your side. You just have to, to educate them in the best way possible and, um, and hope that they can write, make the right decisions for themselves. Do you approach, and we'll, we'll get you out of here soon, uh, do, you, do you approach this as a, you know, strategically, do you approach it the same way that you kind of approached your sport, approached skiing, in that, you know, like you're talking about creating these allegiances with the delivery guys and and trying to find different ways to to approach the problem or to reach an end. Is it similar? Is it similar strategically? For me, it is because I don't. I don't feel like I think like other people and, and for a lifetime that's held me back because I'm highly dysle dyslexic and ADD. And once I get nervous, the lines get crossed and it's really hard for me to communicate. So I get intimidated uh, versus in the ski world, everything was comfortable. Now I have to write letters. I have to speak to people. These are not things that I'm good at, but I can't keep on telling myself I'm not good at them. I have to just write a letter and reread it and rewrite it a hundred times and, and listen to it and then decide if it's good enough and have the confidence to do that and, and say what you need to say. Um, so my new passion is uh, lift operator safety training for ski areas. And when you're talking about changing policy and procedure uh, and major ski areas, plus the, the ANSI standards, the safety standards for all of the United States, you wanna come across uh, as clear, clearly as possible. And I think that in this day and age, we can, do so much more with lift operator safety through the use of video, through the use of uh, training tools that lift operators 
would be able to get online, check it off. They've been trained. They've been paid if they get paid. And it's as simple as that. But we can't, we can't expect lift operators to know what to do with an adaptive skier if they've never even seen one. And, and, and asking them to do that is, is uh, it's, first of all, it's discriminatory. If they're training lift operators and not training them how to accommodate guests with disabilities, it's clearly discriminatory, it's dangerous, and somebody is going to lose their lives. And unfortunately, a gentleman did lose their lot, his life two days after I wrote one of these letters. And that motivated me to say, never again stand down to the obvious changes that need to be made. Um, it's not just me, there are other people. Go out there and find them and get what you need to do to make it happen. But you also, I mean, you talk about how difficult it is doing, writing the letters, doing the communication, speaking to people about their expertise, right? I mean, it's like you're coming into their arena and they're saying to you, you don't know what you're talking about. But you also have, have, a, have a talent in some ways too, right? I mean, the spatial part, you're, you're an artist, right? So you're seeing the spatial part of how things work and how things fit together, but also being a skier, you understand the movement part, right? The movement and how people move through that space, how things fit and how people move through that space. And so, I mean, looking at that talent in a lot of ways, that, that specificity, is there, is there something that you can look and, and feel more armored and feel like, hey, to a certain extent, yes, I understand exactly what you're doing, but I can help you here. I can help you with something that you're not going to see. Is, is, that, is, there, is there a change? Is there a shift that's happening? There is, and it feels just kind of like skiing, like now... I've taken my three steps back when I'm downhill training. You know, I'm not going to just go for it on the first round. I'm going to take my three steps back and work up it, up to it. And that's what I feel now. I, I, I'm confident in the fact that I, in, in this project that I can say, first of all, I was a lift operator myself. And that is a huge um, view to have because I can see from both sides of the bull wheel. As a, as a lift operator and as an adaptive skier, and I can tell you their job is not that hard. In the 80s, it was a little harder, I think, because you had uh, a fixed grip chair and you had to just keep it going. There was no slowing the chair down. If somebody came out, you were either gonna push them to the ground, push them out of the way, sit them down in the chair, but the idea was you took command of your lift. And that's what is not happening because nobody's told them. It's not the lift operator's fault that they're bored to death. If you told them all the things that they should be looking for, they could be busy all day. Um, don't have a rake in your hand when you're trying to help an adaptive skier. That's a cartoon for crying out loud. But if we have to put these in cartoon form to make our ski areas safe, because this is no um, it's not an amusement ride. It's a lift that people and children 
are on and you don't know where they go once they leave your station. And we want to give lift operators the tool to know what chair a person's on, where they are on the mountain, is it high enough or low enough to evac from, and where in the communication in, in getting them off this lift safely. Um, I've been traumatized by it myself and hung from the lift, and every one of my mono skier friends have had basically the same experience, and that should not be normal. That should not be, oh, that's just adaptive skiing. No, we need communication. Awesome. Well, we look forward to the communication that you are going to spread throughout the ski community now. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, we've gone from from skiing to art to advocacy. You you have a ton of stuff going on. It's great to it's great to hear how you are how you are bringing your vision to so many different things in this world and and making a difference that way. So Thank you for joining us and yeah, keep doing what you're doing. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure, one revolution. Good luck to you. And um, I guess I'll see you out there on the slopes. I hope someday. I hope so. I hope so. Depending upon how this, this winter goes, we don't know how the winter will go, but thank you so much. Thank you to everyone who has tuned in. If you only were able to catch a little bit of this and want to see the whole thing, you can go to the One Revolution page on Facebook. This will be housed on the One Revolution page. We are also going to upload it to the One Revolution channel on YouTube. So thank you again, Sarah, and thank all of you.